Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark with Charles W. Chuck Bryant and Jerry. And this is Stuff You Should Know about tard grades. <laughs> uh, never heard of these little guys. Really? And now they have shot into the top five alongside the octopus. Whoa. And uh, what was the other one that I... Jellyfish. Jellyfish. <clears throat> these little dudes want to hug them. I might be hugging them right now. You could, well, probably not. Probably not, but I love them. Okay. They're cute. You tell them. They're tiny. Yeah. They're, um, not, hardly anybody knows what they are. I would say they're, I would say 99% of people listening do not know what this is. Really? So I was under the impression that they were kind of a big hit on the internet within the last couple of years. Well, I'm not hip to that stuff, so maybe. Okay. It might have been a part of a meme. I don't know what a political meme. Yeah, I think I think tardigrades had a had a moment. Okay, but it turns out that they uh, they've been around for much longer than the internet. Yeah, yeah, hundreds of millions of years. Yeah, uh, somewhere around the neighborhood of six hundred million years. Yeah, uh, which would make them pre-Cambrian explosion, which makes them really old. PCE. Yeah. So before we get into that, let's tell you what we're talking about. Yes, a tardigrade. Also known as a water bear. Cute name. This is my favorite. Moss piglet. Yeah. Um, pygmy rhinoceros. Eh. Pygmy armadillo. Eh. I don't like armadillos ever since our leprosy episode. Oh, right. <laughs> um, they are little tiny microscopic uh-huh. animals. Animals. Multicellular animals that, um, Reproduce sexually in a lot of cases that, um, are, well, they're animals. They're not just like, they're not bacteria, they're not viruses, they're not bugs. They're very, very small. They get to be about a half to one millimeter in size, depending on the species. Yeah. And, um, they're also super cute, depending on your view of things. Yes. First thing you should do if you're at home or, uh, if you're not driving, let's say. Is pull out your phone or your or your desktop. Pull out your desktop PC whopper <laughs> and look up tardigrade <laughs> and just look at a little picture of it, and you know so you know what we're talking about. Right. Um, if you ask me, people liken it to a panda bear. I don't quite get that. Although the have you seen the picture of the one on its back? No, I don't think I did. Very cute. Looks like you just want to scratch his little belly. Yeah. But uh, it looks to me like if a moth caterpillar and a naked mole rat. Mm, had no. an unholy union. That was awesome. That was the best analogy I've ever. That's kind of what it looks like to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> unholy union. I, yeah, they managed to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Somehow. Teledildonics. Uh, <laughs> uh, the name tardigrade is is from Latin, and it actually means slow walker, which is cute in and of itself. Yeah. And that supposedly was named by. Um, this uh, Italian scientist named Lazzaro Spallazzani. Tell him the name of his book. I love this name. His book was, uh, oh boy, Opuscoli Deficia Animale e Vegetabile. Not bad. Not bad? You didn't raise your, your fingers, though. Oh, uh, that's right. 
But he named this guy. He found this. Well, he didn't discover it. Apparently, before him in 1773, a German pastor named Johann August Ephraim Goetze uh, discovered it. But he is the one, Spallazzani is the one who named it uh, Il Tardigrado, which means slow stepper. Yeah, and the reason he called it that is because if you look under a microscope at all the stuff, which was all the rage in the late 18th century. Oh, yeah. Look at all the stuff. After, uh, what was his name? Anton von Leeuwenhoek. Am I saying that correctly? Oh, I don't remember. I'm pretty sure. Um After he started to invent microscopes and they, their use spread, people started looking at what was in... Debris and rain gutters when oh, yeah. you added water to it. And they found that when you add water to stuff that was just dried up dust in a rain gutter, all of a sudden you saw that there was a bunch of things that came to life. Yeah. And most of those things move around really, really fast, just darting about like, oh, it's over here. Let's go over there. I want to go over there. They have like very short attention spans, sure. right? Tardigrades lumber about. Yeah. They kind of fall and flip over a lot as uh-huh. they're climbing over like pieces of dust and other particles. Um, and they move much more slowly and, and I guess deliberately yeah. compared to their other microscopic friends in the, in the rain gutter debris. So that's where they got their name. Yeah. Um, they have eight legs. Yeah. Little, little short, little stubby legs. Right. And to the, their rear legs are inverted, right? So yes. they're facing forward instead of backward and they they no they, they face backward they face backward yeah instead of forward yeah and all their legs have little claws at the end right for climbing for climbing and the first uh three pairs of legs are used for swimming the back are, are used for climbing only and rudder work yeah <laughs> the front ones paddle and they steer with the rear they make dream hands with it uh and what are they climbing over well it depends you can find them all over the place um, but mainly if they're on dry land, they're, they're living in moss, fallen leaves, um, stuff that you would find in a gutter. Lichen. Yeah. Yeah. Things that typically, um, have moisture in them because water bears, tardigrades, um, survive when they're surrounded by moisture, right? When right. they're amid moisture. Freshwater, saltwater, doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. And Depends on the kind, of course. Right. So they're, they apparently originated in the sea because the, the species of tardigrades that are marine based are the least evolved, I guess you'd put it. Yeah. Then, yeah, you've got freshwater ones and then you've got ones that are terrestrial that you can find on land. And those are the ones that live in lichens and moss and stuff like that. Um, and all of them again are part of this f- branch of the family tree. That's its own phylum. Tardigrada is a, a phylum. Yeah. And this article makes the point that um, if you look at humans, we're, we're, we share a phylum chordata with like snakes and um, f- every other vertebrate on earth, right? These guys have their own phylum. They're in their own club. They really are. Yeah. So this has two things, that they're a very ancient line mm-hmm. and that there is a ton of them, a lot of them. Yeah. And there are. There's water bears everywhere. Yeah, and we mentioned that they're animals. And if you look at a picture, it's probably from a, well, not probably, it's definitely from a microscope. And so, you know, you think that, again, like it's just some sort of bacteria or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it's not. It is an animal. It has a brain, has a nervous system, it has a little stomach and little tiny intestines, it has a little tiny anus, little <laughs> tiny esophagus. Right. And, uh, 
they don't have heart and lungs or veins. No. Uh, because I was going to say open source. They are open, uh, hemocoil, as the lady on the internet said. Yeah. Which means that gas exchange and nutrient exchange happens because every cell in the tardigrade's body is touching the, bo- the interior body cavity. Yeah. So as food and air goes through the mouth and out the, his tiny anus, right? Um, those nutrients and those gases get to get passed into the cells that get past, that, that it passes by. Yeah. It's like a studio apartment. It's actually extremely efficient. Sure. So there are about a thousand species or more of tardigrades, um, 600 or so on land, about 300 marine and about a hundred in the freshwater. Um, they lay eggs. Some of them have sex. Some of them don't. Some of them self-fertilize. Yeah. It's pretty interesting stuff. What else? They eat the fluids of plants. Or they, some of them are carnivores. Yeah, the fluids of animals. Right. But they, it's always got to be fluid. Yeah. They have like a piercing mouth part, I believe, that can pierce cell wall and just suck the fluids and proteins and stuff out of a cell. And depending on the species, that cell may be plant-based or it may be animal-based. Yeah. Including other tardigrades, which is decidedly less cute. Cannibalism. You sure. Know? So if you're sitting there right now and you're thinking, uh, I don't see how this rivals an octopus. These are just tiny little, maybe kind of cute, but tiny little animals. Mm-hmm. What's the big whoop? Uh, right after this break, we'll tell you what the big whoop is. We're back with the big whoop about tardigrades. Mm-hmm. Despite the size of these things, how big were they again? Uh, in a, if you look at a magazine article, they're about half the size of a period Ooh. at the end of a sentence. That's a, what's a magazine? <laughs> <laughs> no, you that's, know that's true. You say that, but it's true. I know. So sad. That's a good way to put it though. Change. So it's the worst. They're that tiny and they are one of the toughest most resilient creatures on the planet Earth, mm-hmm. period. They're probably the most resilient animal yeah. or organism on Earth. Amazing. All right, let's talk about it. Let's talk about temperature. Yeah. They like it at like 75 degrees and nothing else, right? So, well, what's weird <laughs> is there's this longstanding tradition in biology of trying to kill tardigrades under really... Yeah. Not so conditions. Yeah. Let's see what these little guys can take. <laughs> right. Basically. I'm not quite sure how it started, but somebody figured out, um, fairly, fairly early on that they could withstand amazingly cold temperatures. Right. So we're yeah. talking like down to basically absolute zero, a couple, just a couple of degrees above absolute zero. And to understand how crazy that anything could survive at absolute zero, that's where like atomic movement ceases is at absolute zero. There's no movement of atoms or molecules any longer, right? Because that's what heat is. Heat energy is the movement of atoms and molecules. So cold, by contrast, is the cessation or the lesser movement of atoms, right? We're talking negative 272 Celsius, negative 459 Fahrenheit. So tardigrades have been kept at that temperature for 20 hours. Yep. And then thawed out. 
And they said, yeah, that's what you got. Ooh, you got yeah. a Tic Tac? This is great. I think I felt a fly on my shoulder. <laughs> uh, yeah, so seemingly unharmed. Um, they put them on ice uh, at negative 200 Celsius, so not absolute zero. Mm-hmm. But they've iced them down for years mm-hmm. in a row. Thought them out. They were right back to normal. Right. Amazing. Then on the other side, they've exposed them to extraordinarily hot temperatures, like 150 degrees Celsius. Yeah. And um, we should say, so the fact that they're surviving, that's like, wow, 150 degrees Celsius. That's hot. Absolute zero. That's cold. Yeah. The reason why it's so incredibly just mind-boggling that tardigrades can survive this and still be animals is that... They appear to be the only life that can survive these conditions. Yeah. The reason why is if you freeze and you're multicellular, your cells are liable to freeze themselves, and there's going to be all sorts of cellular damage when the ice crystals form in your cells. Yeah. They're going to rupture your cells because ice expands when it freezes, right? Yeah. I think we it's also about less hypothermia. dense, too. Yes, we did. Or yeah. frostbite. Yeah, frostbite. So the fact that they can come back to life after being exposed to these really cold temperatures means that they've got something going on that's keeping their cells from rupturing. Science has no idea why. On the other hand, with heat, tremendous heat, when you you expose a cell to 150 degrees Celsius, which is above the boiling point of water, right? Yeah. You are... um, your proteins are going to unfold and pool and coagulate and be totally useless. So you can't come back to life because all of the processes and the building blocks of life are useless in your body. Yeah. And you would have to start from scratch, which is tough to catch up to when you're trying to, to come back alive from being exposed to high temperatures. Tardigrades do it. All right. So they flash freeze them. They freeze them for years. They boil them. They try and smash them. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the tune of 5,800 pounds per square inch of pressure. Mm-hmm. And the tardigrade was like, bring it. Yeah. No problem. And we're talking about pressures that are six times greater than the greatest pressures found anywhere on Earth. Yeah. And they withstand it. Uh, they blasted them. They tried to suffocate them. They wrapped <laughs> tiny little hands around their throat. <laughs> <laughs> they put on tiny black gloves first so they didn't leave any evidence. No, they tried to suffocate them with uh, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen. Um, they've shot them with gamma rays. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? The X-rays. Yeah, they found there was a French study that found that um, it took five hundred and seventy thousand rontgens. I think that's how you say it <laughs> to kill fifty percent of the tardigrades in a sample. Yeah, right? but fifty percent still lived. Right. And that's 570,000. It takes 500 to kill a human. But it took 570,000 to kill half, just half of the tardigrades in a sample. Yeah, they shot them up into space, and I think about half of those lived, right? Mm-hmm. So they've literally, like he said, they're trying to come up with newer and more creative ways to kill these things, and the tardigrades take all comers, right? basically. And the... um. They're, they have a couple of mechanisms. Again, science is trying to figure out, one, how their cells keep from freezing in a way that they would rupture. Yeah. Or how their proteins keep from unfolding. But, like, that kind of uh, radiation exposure should do all sorts of horrible things. You should go listen to our radiation sickness episode. That was a good one. Yeah. But it should do all sorts of horrible things, like break up DNA. 
but apparently they have some sort of mechanism to prevent this from happening, right? Well, they have a mechanism to stitch it back together. <clears throat> and apparently they also produce a protein called DSUP that uh, acts as a shield that wraps itself around DNA and, and basically shields the DNA from radiation exposure to begin with, right? Amazing. So um, they have all these these natural processes, but they also have passive processes as well that that include basically like going into a state of suspended animation depending on the conditions. Yeah, there are two uh, things called um, uh, anoxybiosis and cryptobiosis. They're, those are two of the three states where these things live. Um, the other one is just the active state, which is just a regular living normal tardigrade. Right. Uh, it's where they're doing all their daily life, basically, which I don't think we mentioned, you know, there's not a lot to that part. No, and apparently researchers are like, we have no idea what role they play in an ecosystem. Yeah, that's kind of what I was wondering. Yeah. Like, they're indestructible. They're going to be the only thing left maybe after our nuclear annihilation mm -hmm. or global warming has wiped us off the face of the earth. Sure. Uh, but why? Nobody knows. Who knows? Maybe they're going to grow up and be big boys one day. Well, no, that's a really great question, though, because if you think about it, you're like, why would these things be able to withstand pressure six times greater than what's present on Earth or radiation like you would never find on Earth or temperatures yeah. like you would never what's find the on reason? Earth? It doesn't make any sense until you stop and think like there doesn't have to be a reason. It could just be that they have they strategies have that yeah. they use to defend themselves against certain conditions on Earth that are just just totally unrelatedly yeah. also happened to cover these other conditions that we humans tried to launch them into that a tardigrade would never would never evolve to take on but they can still withstand it yeah like you ask the tardigrade and they're like we're just trying to survive dude right like why do you have to lay a purpose on us <laughs> what's with your hang-ups so the first one i mentioned the uh, uh anoxybiosis that's when if you like starve them of oxygen they will puff up uh, in a little ball and stay that way, basically. Yeah, I guess they lose their ability to um, regulate fluid transmission in and out of their cells. Yeah. And fluid rushes in and they puff up. Yes. And they can stay that way, I think, for a few days, and then after that they die. But not bad. A few days of being completely saturated with water, not bad. Yeah. Uh, the, the one that's really amazing, though, is the cryptobiosis. So... Uh, we said that they do need this water. Um, if they, it doesn't mean they have to live in the water, but they need water. Mm -hmm. Um, but if this water eventually goes away and you dry them up, they pull in their feet, they mm -hmm. pull in their head, mm -hmm. and they basically stop metabolizing. They go into this weird state of suspended animation where they say, all right, I'm, I'm basic, you think I'm dead? By all accounts, I look like I would be dead, right. but I'm not. And it's called a tun state, T-U-N. Yeah, or tune. I think it might be tune because it was, it's short for, um, tunken form. It's got a, it's a German word with an umlaut over the O. So wouldn't that be a two? Well, it's like turn, tunchen form. Tunchen form? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm going to call it a tun state. Uh, okay. So this, this tun state or tune state, that's how I'm going to say it. Uh, <laughs> It, it, their metabolism slows down to like 0.05% of its normal rate, right? Yeah. And there was a researcher in, uh, the 40s in Italy who said that she revived a, uh, sample of tardigrades from a sample of dried moss that had been collected like 120 years before. Yeah, that one's a little hinky. 
Well, apparently, yeah, no one's ever recreated that one. But they have found that a tardigrade can survive in this teen state for at least 32 years. Yeah. Some Japanese researchers took moss that was collected from Antarctica in 1983, and in 2015, they um, opened up the sample and were they rehydrated it, and they found that some tardigrades came alive. Yeah, it's almost like it freeze-dries itself mm-hmm. and just needs to have, you know, add water. And they're like, all right, what what happened over the last 30 years? Right, exactly. Who's president? The thing is, though, is if something dries out, it loses 97% of its of its water, its moisture from its body, I think. Okay. Okay. If something dries out like that, like your DNA needs water, too. Sure. So if DNA stays dry, it starts to deteriorate pretty quickly. So, again, nothing is supposed to be able to survive 30 years of that state, right? That's right. Um, so this has just got researchers puzzled as well. Like, how are they doing this kind of thing? Apparently, they have um, proteins that help stitch DNA back together. Yeah. So I guess they start to come out of the tune state, and one of the first things they do is stitch back this th- their DNA. They get out the little sewing machine. Yeah. Uh, well, there's this one dude, and we'll we'll take a break and talk about his uh, seeming obsession uh, with these little fellows right after this. Alright, so if you want to know everything you want, need to know about a tardigrade, you should sit down and have coffee with UNC Chapel Hill, go Tar Heels, uh, with this, is he a professor? He's a prof. He's a prof? Thomas Boothby. This dude seems like the go-to, like every article I read featured him as the main, uh, interviewee. Well, he likes to talk tardigrade. He does. It's his thing. So, he has a button that he wears all the time that says, ask me about tardigrades. <laughs> People are like, what? Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm sure it's not an obsession, but he is stricken with them as I am. And, um, he's trying to figure out like how and why they're able to do all these amazing things. Sure. Um, probably more on the how than the why. He's kind of, with the why he seems to do a lot of, I don't know. He leaves that to the philosophy professors. Yeah, exactly. So what he, Thomas Boothby uh, made his name not in the way that he would necessarily like when he was leading a team, I think in 2014, maybe, maybe 2015, that that did a genetic scan of a species of water bears and found some really surprising results. Yeah. Right? They found that something like 17 percent and change of genes in the water bears were associated with other things like fungi, bacteria, viruses, Yeah, that they had all these DNA stitched up with theirs. And that the, the assumption was that that was how the tardigrades were able to do all these amazing things and survive in all these ways because they were borrowing talents and traits and characteristics of unicellular life and non-living life like uh, viruses. Yeah. And that that's how they were able to to survive these extreme conditions. Yeah, but it's uh, the kind of 
<laughs> ended up being a watch. Like he got really excited and thought, oh my gosh, they've got all this stuff, but it turns out they were just contaminated through poor experimentation. <laughs> right. They, they, they assumed that there was lateral gene transfer that was going on. Yeah. Turns out that, yeah, they had a contaminated sample and hats off to Thomas Boothby because he's not like, okay, I'm going to go hide for the next decade. Like he's, he was like, hey, it happens. It's science, man. We've gotten increasingly sophisticated machines and the increasingly sophisticated machines found that our sample was contaminated. Let's get back to work. So this, uh, Japanese researchers did a follow up on a different type of tardigrade, one of the hardiest around, um, Rasmataurus. Rasmataurus. Ra- basically, <laughs> I was hoping that's what it was, but it was a, like Ramazadius Variornatus. <laughs> Here it comes, this. Okay. <laughs> uh, and that's one of the hardiest of all. It's a land species. Um, the land are much more hardier. I think we already said that. Right. And well, there's your why, Chuck, that one of the reasons why these, the, the land, um, species have, have evolved is because they have to. They don't have these stable conditions that the marine and aquatic ones do, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, they tested the Raz- Ramazadius arvarianatus species mm-hmm. and they found that they had about 1% of foreign genes involved in them. Which is about normal. Right. Because lateral gene transfer can happen mm-hmm. at that rate. It's just sort of average. Right. All right. So like you said, he held his head high and said, all right, no big deal. We're going to continue to search for the reasons why these little dudes are so hardy. Yeah. One of the things that they found that was pretty unique is um, ice is a big deal. And we talked a little bit a few minutes ago, uh, hearkening back to the frostbite where ice crystals form inside a cell tearing apart that DNA, and there are some animals that make an antifreeze uh, like protein, mm-hmm. uh, like fish, some fish do that, to keep it from freezing, and they thought, well, maybe the tardigrade is doing that, and they don't think it is. They think it can just handle it, yeah. basically. Right. Like, maybe it's just freezing the outside of the cells and not the inside, Right. like some weird mechanism they don't understand, yeah. but it's definitely not producing an antifreeze like some of these fish are. Exactly. It's just like bring bring it on, little ice. I can take it. I can take that, yeah. no problem. And again, with uh, radiation exposure, they have they they've been found to have proteins that shield DNA and the ability to stitch DNA back together, right? Yeah. So you got that covered. Yeah, and I think you alluded to it earlier. Um, it may not be the case of the tardigrade has all these different things to survive these environments, mm-hmm. but maybe two or three little tricks that are just, you can apply to different ways of survival. Exactly. So it's not like they're evolving to go fly through space. Right. Colonize new planets. That's a question that a lot of people uh, come up with once they learn about tardigrades. Is like, well, wait a minute. Are these things like aliens? Did they come on an asteroid and right. basically get spread like seed here on Earth? Um, they c- could survive space. Some of them could conceivably. But um, they would burn up on reentry, so probably not. So were they oh, on right. on the back of an asteroid, they would, yeah, they'd burn up. Because fire apparently can kill a tardigrade, I guess. Yeah, in those space experiments, they were inside the satellite, inside the capsule, protected from reentry, right? Until they were out in space, and then they were exposed to solar radiation, and then they were put back in the capsule and brought back to Earth, right? Safe and sound. Yeah. So like. The, the thing he found in common was with the, the heat and the cold, it, the common link there is an ability to repair DNA. 
And so maybe that's the sort of common denominator here. Right. They're just good at it. Yeah. And they're good at it because they have to be or else they wouldn't be around. Yeah. They were forced into it. Yeah. It's a pretty nihilistic view. I like it. <laughs> there is another thing that stood out to me that I, I just love. So um, at the pressures they can withstand. Yeah. The fatty membranes of their cells should be as solid as cold butter. And again, should stop functioning at those pressures. Mm -hmm. Or it should kill them. They bounce back. Solid as cold butter. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, think about it. Like, normally, fatty membranes that make up cells, they're basically in a liquid state. Yeah. Cold butter, that's not good for cellular function. Yeah, it's also not good when they give it to you at a restaurant. I know. To put on the bread. Well, you know the key to that. Stick it under your arm. Well, I just hold it in my hands. Yeah. And you want, you're gonna want to get greedy and try to do two at once? Don't. It slows it down more than it, longer than it takes to do two separately. But then you got butter on your hands. No, no. I mean, you, you get the little foil wrap kind. Oh, I'm talking about like- They serve you a dish with cold butter, you leave. Yeah, I'm talking about like a, you know, a, a real restaurant that, that just has butter in a dish. That's, that's what I'm saying. You leave that restaurant. Pack. That's not a real restaurant. Somebody, <laughs> somebody's not paying attention to detail. Or even the worst are the, the little cold butter balls that they've scooped. <laughs> and you it's just, just tuck that in your cheek and warm it. It's not spreadable. It's useless. Right. Yeah. It just rolls around when you try to spread Put it, it in a Nerf gun. That would hurt. Man, have you seen those things lately? No. By the way, huh. I was watching a kid's channel the other day and I try not to get too like hysterical about stuff. <laughs> But the Nerf guns these days, they're, they're like assault weapons. Yeah. I guess I do. Like, I have seen directly them. Directly modeled. Orange, so it doesn't count. Yeah, I know, but it's, I don't know. It's clearly made me think like, huh, well, they're clearly indoctrinating young children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> as young as possible. You like this Nerf gun? You're going to love the AR-15. <laughs> anyway. Uh, wow, that took a weird turn at the end. Yeah, didn't it? If you want to know more about tardigrades or guns, you can type those words into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And since I said whatever, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this Aaron Sorkin rebuttal. (laughs) This is from Mark Frost. Uh, Hey, guys, had a comment or two about Chuck's professed dislike of Aaron Sorkin. Was that you? I thought that was me. No, it was me. Did you you gang up? Yeah. Okay. Uh, My wife and I are definitely fans, but I want to... But a different perspective out there for you to consider. I don't think anyone is supposed to consider his writing to be conversational. Uh, I would kind of liken it to a musical or the plays of Shakespeare. And he says, I'm not equating Shakespeare with Sorkin. Uh, musicals aren't how people talk. Shakespeare was definitely not representing how people talk back then. Uh, for Willie the Shake, it was a poetic language filled with metaphors. Uh, that turns a lot of people off even today. But like with musicals, it's a stylized way of showing what people are feeling and thinking. Realizing that, yes, people don't talk that way actually makes me enjoy it more. In some ways, it makes things more compact in that it can express feelings, ideas more quickly, but can often do so with more, uh, do so more entertainingly. Uh, as in, people are way more quick-witted than you would be uh, in real life, but suspending your disbelief makes it enjoyable, for me at least. I think that's the problem I have with it. It, it prevents me from suspending disbelief. Yeah, me too. Uh, I definitely like the Steve Jobs movie, which we both liked, right? You liked it, right? I haven't seen it. Oh, okay. I did. I actually liked how clearly uh, artificial the construction of it was. It seemed very much like a play in several acts. I agree with you there, sir. 
uh, did not feel like anything that was attempting to show real events or real sequences, but rather to condense a lot of what happened during periods of his life into specific scenes. Uh, I agree with all that. Uh, Then those scenes packed in the drama emotions from the time they had. Uh, We also just finished Newsroom newsroom and love that. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, people are uh, always open to their own opinions, um, and I tend to agree with most of your film thoughts, just not this one. Uh, I love both your show and you guys, and will continue to do so. That is Mark Frost. Thanks, Mark. That was a very well-written, well-thought-out Thanks. Yeah, I get it. People love Aaron Sorkin. People love all that West Wing and stuff like that. Have you seen The Night Manager? No. What is that? Man. Where did I hear about that? Is it everywhere? It's a John le Carre adaptation with um, uh, Dr. House and uh, Tom Hiddleston. Actually. It's really good. Is it a movie? It's like a, a six-part miniseries. Oh, yeah. I like those. Very good. Check it out. You yeah. will like it a lot. Promise. All right. That's got Josh's guarantee. Yep. You also said it like Soylent. I, I didn't say that, did I? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just kidding. You thought you were making me think I was losing my mind. No. Uh, if you want to get in touch with Chuck and me, you can tweet to us, SYSK Podcast or Josh M. Clark. Facebook us at uh, Charles W. Chuck Bryant or Stuff You Should Know. Send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. Hit us up at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.